All right, good morning, North Lake. As you make your way to your places, hopefully you've got an outline this morning. It is in the back. We have the uh, exciting privilege to start a new book where it's gonna be a condensed study. We could take a whole fall and a whole spring in the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you have ever had a kind of a study of the book of Ecclesiastes? Yay, nay. Okay, excellent. I see you there with the Charles Swindoll handbook. All right, I'm kidding, Brandon. All right, good to see your faces. Welcome, welcome. Uh, we'll take out the book of Ecclesiastes. We're gonna, this morning's just gonna be really the intro. We'll get a sense of the whole book, its purpose, its thrust, its tenor, its structure. Uh, and then we'll work our way through what will be four sections of the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? All right, one of the things we'll see out the gate in a moment, I'm letting you kind of get to your places. There are all sorts of misconceptions and misunderstandings as to the book, what it's about, and what we are to do with it, okay? So if you'll go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes, let's ask for the Lord's help, wisdom, illumination, and by his grace, the ability to apply what we hear and see. Father, we look to you this morning. We've each come from perhaps a, a morning of hustle and bustle, getting out of the house and now making our way to our places. We have the joy, we have the honor to begin yet another book in your word. We thank you for the wisdom that comes from on high. We thank you for your grace and kindness that you would give us instruction and insight and a paradigm through which we are to see these lives as we live them in a world that is broken and not what it ought to be. Uh, Ecclesiastes is gonna speak that to us plainly. Uh, Lord, you point us in the right direction of how we are to respond as people. We are to fear you and to keep your commandments. And so Lord, that work, that task, that way of living, we pray that you would work in us even as we began our study this morning. Uh, we pray for the whole of our time that Christ would be honored. We pray it now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I mentioned in a, a church-wide email earlier this week that Ecclesiastes is one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. Let me ask you to start off. What, what typically comes to mind when you think of Ecclesiastes? First thing out the gate, what comes to mind? Wisdom, okay, it's wisdom literature, what's that? Vanity, a vanity, say it with me, all is vanities, right? There's a catchphrase that our minds kind of run to and that encapsulates the whole of the book in many, many people's minds. And because of this, the frequent assessment of Ecclesiastes is often one of negative terms, right? Uh, this book is so depressing. Anyone hear that? It's nihilistic, fatalistic, cynical, skeptical, on and on and on. Doom and gloom. It's materialistic, experimental, experimental, right? I even asked someone I don't get to interact with very much yesterday morning. They found out we were studying the book of Ecclesiastes. I said, yeah, we're starting it. Uh, I don't know where this person stands with the Lord per se. And the first thing that he said was, oh, I mean, he just, you could see the nausea, uh, feel the nausea, nausea on the phone. Oh, doom and gloom. And I said, actually, no, that's not the case, which we'll see in the next couple of months. Now, these misunderstandings are, are nothing new. We've seen them throughout church history. And because of that, Ecclesiastes is often passed off it's kind of an obscure book. Uh, people don't touch it, people don't venture to it. 
But the book as a whole, when seen in its totality, is quite clear. And in that clarity, there's life-shaping power. We'll see that today. One of the many reasons why is that the book of Ecclesiastes has a way of speaking to us. And not just speaking to us, but it really has a way of speaking into us and and reading our mail, as it were. One of the reasons why is because there are certain things that are common to all mankind, male, female, all ages of history, all civilizations, societies, and cultures. There are a few things that are common to us all. Let me hear from you. What what are a few things that are common to us all? Sin. We're all fallen creatures. Excellent. That's one. We'll get to it in a second. What else? Death. Wages of a sin is death. Excellent. Pride. Yes. Attached to that sin. Pride. What else? Made in God's image. Work. We have to work. Yes. The sweat of our brow. Taxes. Is that what you said? Wow, okay, yeah, I see where, uh-huh. there was such joy in your voice when you said that, yeah. You've already touched on a lot of it, right? One, we're all created, we're all made in his image, we're all fallen, right? This world is not what it ought to be, and we're all accountable, okay? We're all created creatures, Right? And creation theology is going to run throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We're all fallen creatures. We look out through the world and we don't really need a lot of reminders that the world isn't as it ought to be. And so Solomon has his finger in Genesis 3 the whole time and says, look, this is what life looks like east of Eden. This is what life looks like outside of the garden. And we're all accountable. We will all one day, we'll get to it in chapter 11 and chapter 12, We're going to one day stand before our creator, our judge, whose name is God. That's everyone. So of course this book resonates and speaks with us. Another reason it speaks to us, again, it it has a way of speaking to some rather profound questions that rest tethered to the soul of our being, right? Soul questions. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What is life meant to accomplish? To what or to whom do I look for meaning and satisfaction? How can I satisfy that gnawing thirst to understand what's going on in life from the beginning to the end? There are mysteries of which I cannot understand. You see, we're all hardwired by the same God. We're all made in his image, as Natalie says. And because of this, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God puts something in our hearts. He put eternity on our hearts. And because of that, we literally, all mankind throughout time, ask the same questions, right? The same gnawing questions. And and Satan would love nothing more than for you to approach this book with the mindset of, this book really isn't for me, or this book isn't connecting with my life. Satan would love that perspective. And I need you to hear me this morning. This book is for you. It's for me. And why is that the case? It's because every worldview presented over the course of human history has been the offspring of these innate questions that we as human beings ask. This eternity that's etched on our hearts. 
all worldviews, let me say that again, all worldviews are an attempt, as poor as they may be, at answering those questions that lie inside of us. And the beauty of this book, friends, is that this book dismantles all those worldviews that are lifted up against the true knowledge and God of scripture. It exposes them to be the fake, phony, fraud, and empty worldview that they are. Why is this important for you and I as a church here at North Lake? It's because our mission is to develop quality disciples of Jesus Christ. And part of that task entails raising up adults whose lives are anchored to a biblical worldview. And then part of our joy is to watch said people raise up and not only watch them stand firm in that worldview, but also flourish because of it. Their lives are blessed, their families are enriched, their work God is honored in. We have children that are scattered across this place. I think there's 1,500 kids that go to North Lake. They're all over the place, youth group in the gym, upstairs. And you know this, they're gonna enter a world that's gonna preach to them a message that is very contrary to the book of Ecclesiastes. Its aim will be to lead them astray and its aim will be to lead them to chase for fulfillment and satisfaction in everything else other than God himself. And so here's where Ecclesiastes proves unrivaled in its value to us as human beings. It deals with every system of thought, philosophy of man, every pleasure, every pursuit. It puts it into focus. And what the book does is show us the futility of life without God in order to show us the significance of life with God. Let me say that again. Ecclesiastes shows us the futility of life without God in order to show us the significance of life with him. That's the main idea of the book. Life without God is empty, frustrating, yes, fleeting. It will be like smoke that you try to hold in your hand and there's nothing there to grasp. Solomon puts this on display so that we could see the significance of life with God. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, nothing tells us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Nothing tells us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Now the author of this book doesn't make that that case haphazardly, thankfully. It's, the book is not a collection of random, unrelated observations about life kind of smashed together. And it, inattentive reader, superficial reader is going to make that mistake and say this book really has no coherent design and nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to turn to chapter 12 for a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses 9 through 14 absolutely eviscerates this notion that there's no cohesion, structure, and flow to the book. There is a singular message that's deliberately and consciously developed over the course of 12 chapters. And there's unity among those 12 chapters. Look at chapter 12, verse nine. The author writes, in addition to being a wise man, 
The preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth written correctly. The words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Look at verse 13. The conclusion... Wrapping up everything I've been saying, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. If you had to distill down what the theme of Ecclesiastes is, this is a good place to land, right? Enjoy life in light of judgment. You will one day stand before God as judge. You will give an account, whether it be good or evil. In light of that, fear him and enjoy life along the way. I want you to look at Ecclesiastes 12 for a moment. Let's just kind of observe a few things. I think if you pay attention to the epilogue, the end of the book, and really do some work to see how it connects to the prologue, the beginning of the book, it's gonna shed a vast light on everything that resides in between from the start of the book to the end. Right out the gate, we note that this epilogue asserts that the substance of Ecclesiastes, if you look back at Ecclesiastes 12, this comes from the pen of one who is wise. I, I like how he puts this, these are Delightful words. These are words written correctly versus words written incorrectly, right? The one who masters these words, he says, it's like well-driven nails. Who doesn't want to be like a well-driven nail versus the alternative, right? Anyone ever hammered anything and not hit the mark? Whether it be your thumb or the wrong part of the nail, what happens? Pain, yes, frustration, right? That nail does not enter into what it's designed to enter into with precision and care. And what happens is a mess. Life is like that, right? You don't master these words. You don't fear God and keep his commandments. You are that nail that misstrikes. And it usually doesn't turn out too well, right? Secondly, you note that this was not the result of one's personal experience or experimentalism, right? These words, wise words are given to him. Who gave these words? Look look at Ecclesiastes 12. Given by one, what does it say? I have a child name, yeah, shepherd, right? Given by one shepherd. It's a title used of the Lord himself throughout Israel's history, shepherd. And so the claim to divine inspiration here could not be clear for you and I with the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, because it comes by way of revelation from the Lord, we can be confident of a number of things. One, this is given to us with profound care, right? And secondly, we can deduce and be confident of the fact this book is not about doom and gloom. This comes from my shepherd. This book should ultimately lead lead to my flourishing and to his glory and to my everlasting joy and satisfaction in him. 
This comes from one shepherd. And since it comes from one shepherd, we're not surprised that the book has structure. He's a God of order and design. There's cohesiveness to the book. Look at verse 13. The author writes, the conclusion, the whole thing, to sum it all up, to tie a bow around it, and then he proceeds to give us the purpose of the book, which surprisingly enough is not that life is vain and meaningless, but that the key to life is what? To fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. And the message of that book is now conveyed with remarkable unity and structure. Part of the reason there are misunderstandings to the book of Ecclesiastes is People fail to know the structure of the book. They get stuck and under the microscope examining all the trees that they lose sight of the forest. And we're gonna spend time looking at trees, but we cannot become detached from the larger forest and big picture of what the author's doing through the whole of this book. And so let's roll out the canvas for a moment. Let's familiar ourselves with the structure and plan and scope of the book itself. I would encourage you to keep this tucked in your Bibles over the next eight weeks or so, okay? We're gonna consult it, we're gonna come back to it. Obviously with the aim, we don't wanna lose the forest by getting lost in the trees, right? This book is divided into four parts, four parts. And each of the first three parts really end in the same exact way, kind of noting to you, hey, this is the end of the section. This should sound familiar to you. To eat and to drink, right? And to realize the benefit of one's labor, right? This too is a gift from God. Eat, drink, realize the benefit of your labor. It's all a gift from God. You see it at the end of chapter two, you see it at the end of chapter five, and you see it after the end of chapter eight. Let's kind of look at these sections. We're gonna have a flyover. And then we'll land the plane along the ways in the weeks to come, okay? Section one, right out the gate, chapters one to two is enjoy life as a gift from God. Enjoy life as a gift from God. As you read through the book, one of the things that should become pronounced to you is that happiness is not in man's own power, okay? That's different than what the world would present to you, is it not? Happiness is not in man's own power. All striving, all toiling is powerless to give true gratification. Look at the end of chapter two for a moment. Chapter two, we'll read verse 24. Again, this is the end of section one, could not be clearer. These words will become very rich to us here in the coming weeks. There is nothing better. What a deep statement. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. It's from God. And if you underline any any question, look at verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. What's the implied answer to that question? No one. 
Happiness is not in man's own power. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after what? Wind. It's gonna be two things that we will glean from in this section here in the next couple weeks. Number one, all good things, and life is full of a lot of good things, is it not? All good things, if they're to be received and understood as coming, all good things must be received and understood as coming from the hand of God if they are to be used properly and joyfully. Let me say that again. All good things must be received and understood as coming from the hand of God if they are to be used joyfully and properly. Secondly, is that God is the one who grants the ability to extract enjoyment from life. God is the one who grants that ability. Mankind doesn't innately possess the ability in and of himself to find satisfaction in life. Let me ask you, you're from an anecdotal plane right here, just observe life, people's experience, individuals around you, maybe even instances in your own life. What are some examples that you can observe in life that man does not in and of themselves innately have the capacity to find true enjoyment in life? What's a great example of that? Individuals in the world. Always wanting more. Discontentedness. What else? Never satisfied. satisfied. Excellent. Always a thirst for more. Ungrateful. Envious. Envious. Yeah, a lot lot of gross colors here to our sinful, wicked hearts. What else? Yeah. Rust and moth destroy, right? Solomon will get to that in a moment. The more you have, the more you, the more you stress about storing it, preserving it, and keeping it. Excellent. Are there miserable people? Are miserable people only reserved for those who have very little in life? or they're miserable people across all socioeconomic statuses, right? It's not, uh, to, to, to be a, a, a joy-filled person means you have everything at your disposal, you have an unending amount of resources. There are still histories replete with examples of people who were absolutely miserable and yet from a worldly perspective seem to have everything, right? Man lacks the ability in and of himself to extract enjoyment from, th- from life. And Solomon's gonna in- emphasize this shortly. He's gonna illustrate the restlessness of life in chapter one. He's gonna test the pleasures and purposes of life in chapter two, show their, as was already mentioned, the transient nature of these things. They're here and then they're gone. They do not last forever. Section one, enjoy life as a gift from God. Section two is understand the all-encompassing plan of God. Understand the all-encompassing plan 
of God. Not only is happiness beyond man's natural reach, but so is understanding. See, you and I are unable to understand really the big picture of what God is doing. And God made it this way for a, a reason. We, we frequently look at the events of life and we ask, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. I, I, know, I know you're sovereign, but I don't quite get where this is all gonna pan out and make sense. What are you up to? Anyone ever been there, right? You ponder, you're curious. And in asking this, right, and we've all been here, we're humbled by a God-created reality that you can't control, right? Of course, the events of life and circumstances are always ebbing and flowing and you don't have the capacity to pull the levers and push the buttons and make things as you desire them to be. You know what this is? It's potentially, potentially, if you do not fear the Lord and keep his commandments, potentially frustrating, right? It's bewildering. You and I built in God's image, we possess this hunger in our hearts to know what he's up to, to know the vastness of his plan, the eternity that's bound up in his plan. It's even as Solomon said, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Look at chapter three, verse 11. We want to know the, the end from the beginning and the beginning to the end. He says, he has made everything appropriate in his time. There's something to anchor your life to. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I made you this way. Yes, you have this gnawing. This was what makes you, among many other things, distinct from the animal kingdom. You have these soul questions that the rest of created order does not have. Why? Because you're made in my image. I've set eternity in your heart. And because of this, you're, you're gonna wanna know the beginning to the end. You're not gonna have the capacity in this life, right? Life's gonna remain an enigma and a frustration until what happens in your life. My eyes cast up and as the conclusion of the matter when all has been heard, what? Fear God. You won't all get it. You won't really know, you won't really be able to make sense of what's happening in life, right? What do you cling to? He has made everything appropriate in its time. When I fear the Lord and keep his commandments, does my life get anchored to that glorious statement, North Lake Bible Church? He has made everything appropriate. The word there is literally beautiful, manifold beauty appropriate in its time. When we believe this and trust this, that God, your purposes remain forever, they're unchanging. You have, you have a plan which is all encompassing. Does that mean that life will no longer have mysteries and you'll completely understand everything that goes on in life? No, it, it, just because you know that and believe that doesn't mean there are things that will still not boggle the mind. Right? He said, everything has been, is appropriate in its time, but man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. You, you won't be able to perceive it. Look at verse 12. He goes on to say, I know that there's nothing better for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime 
Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. Here's that repeating phrase all over the book. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. What a wondrous statement. There's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. God has a scheme that rests on every event, every person's life, even when the world does not comprehend it and you won't. How does knowing this and believing this impact your life? That God has made everything appropriate in his time. There is a plan which is all encompassing. Nothing's left out or forgotten. How does that impact your life as one who fears God? What does the import of that truth do to you? Trust God. Great place to start. Peace. Be still. Know that I am God which is the opposite of what our human inclination is to do. Work it out, solve it, right? Yes. Excellent, excellent. It settles us, right? A settled state and when we settle, we can flourish, right? If you see a plant that's always being moved around, right? Never allowed the roots to just sink down That plant doesn't do too well in life. And that's the case here. No, my roots are allowed. God has made everything appropriate in its time. Your life's gonna look different than my life, but his plan still remains unchanging and forever. He knows what he's up to. What else? I saw another hand somewhere. Okay. Contentment. Yeah, whatever whatever the food and, and, and... good things of which to eat that he's given me, it may not look the same as Joe across the room, right? That's what God has made appropriate and beautiful for me to have. I receive it with joy as a gift from him. There's contentedness there. Yeah, we rest in the fact. We, God has a plan that embraces all people, times, and events, right? If you take away anything from that section, he has a plan that embraces everything And this should mean the world to you. This should pave the way as you work and as you raise your family, everyone's life is going to look different and yet everyone's life can look the same. How profound is that? Full of joy, peace, settledness, flourishing, right? Does it mean we will all look the same at God's plan embraces all of these things? Will that entail sickness and death at times? Massive loss and heartache and disappointment. Yes, yes, and yes. But he has a plan that embraces, yes, even all these things. The second, the third section, if we're to understand that God has a plan which is all-encompassing, we know it, we believe it, it is another thing to apply it, isn't it? Knowing and living don't always happen in sim, uh, simultaneous order. There's often a disconnect. So thankfully in chapter six and 18, there's this massive practical help to apply these things that you do know and you've do, you have heard that everything's appropriate in its time. 
We love section three because Solomon begins to apply all of those previous conclusions that we are to enjoy life as a gift from God and we are to understand that God has a plan that, that embraces all people, times and actions and events. And so the central portion of the book is then in light of those things which we know, what do we do with perceived, and this is helpful, perceived inconsistencies. Let me put this another way. If enjoyment of the world is to be seen as a gift from God, regulated by God, okay? If enjoyment of the world is to be seen as a gift from God and regulated by God, how do we reconcile this with observations where life is full of instances where God's providence seems unfair or cruel? You follow me? If enjoyment of life is to be seen as a gift of God and regulated by God, what do I do when I look out in the world and I see his providence and his plan and my perception is that it's unfair and cruel? Isn't this an inner struggle for every human being at some point in their life? Solomon knows this wrestling match. He knows it firsthand and so he wants us to properly assess the fairness and goodness of the plan of God. I'm reading a book on anger right now and it talks about negative perceptions of injustice, right? We're fantastic perceivers of what, of what we deem to be injustices, right? And we take an accusatory stance towards God. And so Solomon addresses these and helps us maybe not dissolve all of the mystery, but to take an appropriate posture so that we do not question the goodness and fairness of God, the, the love of God, the kindness of God. Because our temptation is to stand before his presence and give God what for, right? We wouldn't say that, but in effect, on a practical plane, that's what we do by complaining, by grumbling. Ecclesiastes dismantles this. Thankfully so. You move your way into section four, there's still this kind of application section Okay, there is this all-encompassing plan of God. Along the way, there's gonna be all sorts of discouragements, all sorts of discouragements. And so the author of Ecclesiastes addresses these discouragements and he enforces them with some practical lessons to close the book. Big takeaway of this whole section will be, we read it a moment ago, we'll unpack it extensively later, is that we should enjoy life while being mindful of death and judgment, right? It's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment, right? Hebrews 9. That's the, that's the thrust and tenor and focus of the book. Enjoy life. Enjoy life in light of judgment. We will all one day stand before our God. We will give an account and this judgment, this accountability, right? We're created, we're fallen, we're accountable. This is a massive running river that goes through the whole of the book from start to finish. Look at chapter 12, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good 
or evil. Every act, what a sobering, sobering truth. With all of this, I want you to encourage from chapter 12, I want you to move now to back to chapter one. Let's jump and rest at the beginning of the book, okay? Let's just make a few observations about the first two verses out the outset that will be helpful the rest, for the rest of our journey. If you look at verses one through two, it's gonna shed light on verses three through 11, even next week, next Sunday. Verse one says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And like we talked about at the beginning, that is usually what comes to people's mind the moment that they think of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, koaleth is the word there, right? Means gather of people for the purpose of teaching. Now, who is this preacher? Being good Bible students, that's the first appropriate question to ask. Who's the preacher? Well, you look at verse one, in recent times, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of debate as to who the author of Ecclesiastes is. But keep in mind for 2000 years of church history, it really wasn't debated. <laughs> and so there's, to be quite frank, there's really not a whole lot of justification for taking a different stance other than to be novel and cute and creative. It's always been understood to be Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, when you think about that, there, I want you to, to ponder, there's two meaningful things here of which to consider and frame in your mind as we enter into the book. This is the son of David, and pause there for a moment, okay? When you hear, this is the son of David, what floods you as, ter- as, as to why that might be important? You tell me. Christ, right? Our Lord himself. What else? What's that? King of Israel, right? The son of David means he's in the line of David, which means all of the rich promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7, an everlasting kingdom through this one David, rests on the shoulders of this one who's writing. That's sort of a big deal. That God would say on this man, I'm gonna move redemptive history forward through this one line and this author, Solomon, is in that line. Now this is important to consider as you read the book. In the Davidic covenant, God channels all the promises of the previous covenants unto one David and his descendants, right? And so to be a Davidic king is is no small thing, is the truth of it. To be so meant that God was gonna move his plan of salvation through you. So when we read Son of David, that should, there's a massive thump on the table as we study that. And not only this, but you'll remember that Solomon, what was one of the characteristics to his life? There were several. What was he characterized by? What ability was he granted? Wisdom, right? Excellent, you can look at 1 Kings chapter one through 11, we get an account of Solomon's life, okay? Encourage you to familiarize yourself with that in the weeks to come, massive backdrop to this book. 1 Kings three, God visits Solomon in a dream, asking Solomon, ask whatever you want of me, right? And you'll recall what Solomon says, the Lord was honored because of all the things of which to ask, Solomon in humility asks, God, I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know how to lead these people. I don't know how to rule and reign. 
give me a heart of wisdom. Well, God was pleased with that reply and that request. And so God grants Solomon far beyond what he could possibly imagine. Such that the text tells us that Solomon had more wisdom than any man after him and any man before him. Apart from the Lord himself, he is the wisest man who ever lived. This is important for two reasons. You put two things together here. We have a Davidic king who's the wisest man on the planet. That's a powerful combination. Of all of people, Solomon was able to look at life and get how it works, right? And giving evidence of this, when you read Solomon's life in 1 Kings, we'll get to the bad in a moment, his reign is unprecedented, is it not? Israel flourishes. He leads the people to rebuilding the temple. At the completion, we literally see God coming down and dwelling among his people again. The text tells us that it's the end of the wandering journeys, right? Why? It's because God is back dwelling with his people. Solomon then leads the people in this fan, just this wonderfully rich prayer, this corporate worship, which is astounding. And you have on display this previously unknown expression of, of unity in the history of Israel. They flourish in every way, agriculturally, financially, politically, military success. The Israeli stock market is just going straight to the sky, as it were. And all of this was under Solomon's throne and under his reign. And so it does come as a bit of a surprise, at least it should, when you reach verse two, again, all of this flourishing, and you read vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Why is this surprising? If any man should have found meaning in life, enjoyment and satisfaction, was it not this man, Solomon? And yet what we see is vanity. That's the word there. I want you to park there for a moment, just the last few minutes. It's a word you're going to see throughout the book, and that's what comes to people's mind when they study it and often think of it. You have it literally 38 times throughout the book, okay? And in order to get the force of this word, we have to comprehend really the word picture that Solomon is drawing here. Throughout the book, Solomon uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing and yet oh so instructive ideas that are bound up in these 12 chapters, right? Nearly 40 times he says that everything in life is havel, right? Vanity, the Hebrew word there's literally for smoke or vapor, right? Well, let me ask you for a moment, what are some characteristics of smoke or vapor? Gone, disappears, doesn't last forever, what else? What's that? No value. No value, okay. No substance. When you try to grab onto it, what happens? Gone, right? And life has a way of feeling that way, right? <laughs> Men are groping and grasping and trying to extract enjoyment and trying to un understand things. And the more they reach out in and of themselves, gone. You can't hold it in your hands. You can't comprehend it. Life is beautiful and mysterious all at the same time. It takes one shape and before you know it, it takes another shape. Circumstances change. Life is very much like that. Slips through your fingers. And so modern translations have really lost this metaphor of, by saying this is meaningless, right? 
vain, it's just empty. But if you read it carefully, the, the author is not. The author is not saying that life has no meaning, but that it's simply difficult to discern. Life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it. And how does that life, how does that meaning rest on your life? Go back to the end of the book, fear God and keep his commandments. Yes, the nature of life is fleeting. Mankind is transitory. We do not last forever, at least on this earth, right? We live and we die. Everything around us is temporary. And it, yes, including smoke. This is also an appropriate description of all of the conundrums that we face along the way during our short stay on the earth. There are a variety of enigmas and perplexities of life that we simply can't get our minds around. We can't understand, we see something, we make an observation, we reach out to take hold of it with what we think is understanding, only to have it pass through our fingers and its explanation dissipates in the air. And again, time and time again, we are humbled, humbled, humbled by God-created reality we cannot control. And Solomon's connection to Genesis here is incredibly strong. The, the root word for Havel used here for vanity lies at the center of someone else's name early on in the book of Genesis. You'll know him, Abel, right? This reference to Abel is no accident. It's not a direct reference, but the root is there. You go back to Genesis 4, just ponder Abel's life for a moment. We see a man who had so much promise in his life. He pleased the Lord with his offerings. And yet what happened to Abel's life? Like that, his life was snuffed out by sin, right? And yes, the testimony of his life continues throughout the pages of scripture, but his physical life on earth was here and it was gone by the rage and anger and jealousy of another. Murdered by his brother, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, right? It's an enigma, it's a perplexity of life. What, how do I make sense of this tragedy? And your life is full of all sorts of instances of maybe not that grand scale, but tragedy all the same. You're surrounded by people whose lives are full of all sorts of perplexities and enigmas themselves. And so Ecclesiastes is a bit of a commentary of this kind of confusing life that potentially exists outside the garden. It's fleeting and it's fleeting because of sin. We live lives of frustration. It's hard, we work by the sweat of our brow. Things aren't what they should be. And so Solomon is painfully, painfully honest throughout 12 chapters, and this is encouraging to us in a number of ways. I think one, just in closing, just ponder for a moment. Yes, life, you're not gonna be able to understand it. It's here and it's gone. That can be frustrating. Friends, if North Lake Bible Church, one day what is God gonna do with the havel or smoke or vapor or vanity? What's he gonna do with it? He's gonna blow it all away, right? There will be an eternal state where we will rest, right? All of the frustrations, all the enigmas, all the perplexities, all the, all the offspring and result and implications, of, uh, implications and results and consequences of sin, whew, done away with. One day God is going to clear the Havel, right? He's going to bring justice on all things 
at a given time. When you know this, the proper response in all of this is to do what? It's to do what Solomon says at the end of chapter 12, right? There's only one simple thing to do, fear God and keep his commandments. Let me ask you in closing, did Solomon live this out perfectly, yes or no? Why do you know this? Story tells us so. What happened in Solomon's life? Speak to me. Married foreign wives, right? You go back to first Kings. Not, yes, Israel flourished. All of those things that we said earlier were true, but not all in Solomon's life was hunky-dory, right? He married foreign wives. The foreign wives led his heart astray. Surprise, surprise, just as the Lord said it would. And Solomon drifted, right? He now writes these reflections at the end of his life. You think he has a few things to say having lived the life that he did? We'll unpack this in the weeks to come. Solomon knew a thing or two. These are words given by one shepherd. He who masters them are like well-driven nails. I don't know about you, but my life, I want my life to be like a well-driven nail, right? Okay, and I know you do as well. Let's ask for the Lord to bless that future study and the rest of our morning. Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you in advance. We thank you for in advance for the wisdom that you will infuse into our lives. We thank you for the sin that you will convict us of. We thank you for the ways in which you will guide, instruct, and steer our hearts to places which lead to our flourishing and our good, our enjoyment, our satisfaction. We thank you for this work that you will do in advance. And we thank you that you've given us this wisdom that we potentially live, no doubt, in a world that's bewildering and frustrating and discouraging. And this is because of sin and the world is not as it ought to be. God, we thank you so much that you have a plan that rests over everything. We pray that you would fill us with faith to believe these things and our life to be impacted and shaped because of it. We pray for our next hour that that would be, it would be equally sweet to this hour as we lift higher voices to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to behold his glory, your glory in his face and in his work on the cross. We pray for our pastor as he opens up the book of Hebrews yet again. We pray that you would help us to mine from its riches. We pray that you would give us insight and understanding, convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. But Lord, we also pray that you would compel us to worship you with every ounce of our being in a way that you rightfully deserve and you rightfully deserve all things. So may you work this in the next hour in our time together. If there be anyone not in Christ, even may today be the day of salvation for them to repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.